Our text this morning is the gospel lesson, which we just heard read from Matthew chapter 21. Jesus, and already at this point a substantial crowd, are at the end of their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover. And it's a pilgrimage which started in the northern province of Galilee. And at this point, Jesus has walked over a hundred miles. And the last leg of this journey is very demanding. It would have been all uphill. It would have started at Jericho, the lowest city on the planet, and for 17 miles would have climbed a total of 3,000 feet. And verse 1 tells us, that at that point they came to Bethpage, which is on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. So this is about a mile east of Jerusalem. And this mountain itself is charged with messianic expectation. In the prophet Zechariah, this mountain is designated, the Mount of Olives, as the place the Messiah will appear. And at the top of this mountain... You can look out across the Kidron Valley and you can see Jerusalem and you can see the temple precincts. You're a couple thousand feet above them at this point. And the city at this time of year is swarming with pilgrims from all over the world to celebrate the Passover. It's a panoramic view and it's an extraordinary, exciting scene. And for Jesus... This is a key dramatic moment in his mission. You might remember up to this point in the Gospels, Jesus would often tell people not to disclose his Messiahship. He would heal someone and say, don't you tell anyone. And now, he takes a deliberate, self-conscious, and really a provocative step What he does in this text is he engages in a kind of drama, an enacted parable. And he's trying to publicly say something to the city and to the crowd. And what he's trying to say is, I am the Messiah. Something nobody could get from his lips till this point. I am the Messiah, the King of the Jews. And so the secrecy what scholars call the messianic secret, which Jesus has kept, is now being lifted. And so, we'll look at the text under three headings. They're there on the back inside page of of the bulletin. The animals, the enthronement, and then the city and the crowds. So, first here, the, the animals. Jesus sends these two unnamed disciples, and he tells them to go to this nearby village. They'll find a donkey tied with her colt by her. Matthew apparently knows that the mother was brought along. The other three Gospels only speak of one animal. But in any event, the animals are to be unbound. They're to be brought to Jesus. And so in verse 3, he says, If anyone says, says anything, tell them this. And what he does here is he gives the disciples a predetermined password. 
This looks like something Jesus has already worked out with the owner of the animals. He says, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say this. The Lord needs them. And Jesus assures them, if you say that, the owner will send them right away. Now, there's a number of interesting things here, but I want to focus on the big picture item to which I've already alluded. Jesus has walked over 100 miles, almost all of it uphill. And now, now he engages in this deliberate, premeditated donkey ride. For the last easy mile, which would have been all downhill. He doesn't need to do this. He and his followers could have slipped into the city virtually unnoticed if he just kept walking. So he's doing something that's contrary to the tenor of his whole ministry. Here, Jesus intends to make a splash. There's going to be a conspicuous donkey rider coming down from a mountain charged with messianic significance, sitting aloft in the middle of a throng of pilgrims on foot. Jesus here, notice, calls himself the Lord. Tell him the Lord needs it. He's the sovereign orchestrator of all of these details in this drama, he's the executive director. He's the owner of the cattle or the beast on a thousand hills, including this hill known as Mount Zion, uh, the Mount of Olives. And so he's ready. He's ready to unveil and to have acknowledged the secret of his Messiahship. And so that brings us to the second point I want to make here about the enthronement. Matthew tells us in verse 4 that this commandeering of these animals for this little play is to fulfill what was spoken of in the prophet. And he cites Zechariah, chapter 9. Say to the daughter of Zion, that is, say to Jerusalem, speak to the city and say this, your king comes to you. Your king comes to you. Now, this Zechariah passage, in its original setting, it envisions the Messiah coming as a victorious and vindicated king, To Jerusalem. And it calls on the city to rejoice in this the triumph of the Messiah. Now, Matthew modifies the citation because he realizes that now is not the time for Jerusalem's rejoicing. That the Messianic king has not yet been vindicated. Right? And he probably does this to emphasize the humility the lowliness and the weakness of this king. He comes, the text says, humble or gentle, riding on a donkey. And we all get, I suspect, the basic point of the scene. And we've probably heard it before in many a Palm Sunday sermon. Jesus is a humble and a lowly king. But I want to emphasize this. He's humble and lowly But he's king. What is going on here is going to have earth-shattering effects. It has his kingship is not up here in some other spiritual realm. 
This is kingship with geopolitical implications for Israel, for the Roman Empire, and for the ends of the earth. The very next verse in Zechariah says this, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So the king who comes in this manner then on a donkey, not on a war horse, like monarchs in the ancient Near Eastern world would ride. Not, a, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. This king nevertheless comes to usher in universal peace, to establish worldwide dominion. His coming on a donkey is prefigured. You can find this throughout the Old Testament. David, King David, whose son is appearing here, when he, when he had to flee Jerusalem after the coup of Absalom, he was given a donkey. A donkey as he climbed the Mount of Olives. And later he returned in peace, forgiving his enemies. Solomon, whose name means peace, rode a mule to his enthronement ceremony. So the donkey here symbolizes not just humility but humility as the way to royal dominion and victory. Humility as kingly power. Humility as the way to international peace. And so in staging this drama, this enactment of the Zechariah text, Jesus is doing a number of things. One of the things he's doing is he's subverting, he's undermining the kind of pop militarism, the nationalism of Jewish messianic expectations. This we've all heard. They wanted a military Messiah, one to liberate the nation of Israel from the Roman overlords. And contrary to this patriotic fervor, this nationalism, the one on the donkey is not the leader, not the leader of an anti Roman insurrection. But he is, as I said, king of Israel. And his dominion will extend to the ends of the earth. So it's important to see this. In his weakness and in his humility, he is royal. He is king and he reigns. The early church fathers were fond of saying of the cross that he reigns from the tree. That the cross is his chariot. That Jesus wields the cross the way a king would wield a scepter. And so, in the Roman world, the emperors, Caesar Augustus, Augustus means majestic and sublime, was considered to be a son of God, divine himself and a divine son. So in the Roman world, you have the emperor. The emperor is king. The emperor is God. The emperor is a son of God. And promulgations throughout the empire about the emperor were called the same Greek word that we use for gospel, evangel. So the emperor had a gospel because the emperor had brought peace. Jesus is self-consciously placing himself right in the crosshairs of the Roman claims. So while it's often said that he's not the leader of a political anti-Roman insurrection, it is wrong 
it is wrong to say that he's not the leader of a political movement that is going to overthrow the empire. Jesus is starting a revolution. And that the, the victims of that revolution will be the whole empire. With a different king and a different son and a different gospel. So, in verse 6, the text continues. The disciples, they did as Jesus had directed them to do. They follow the script. They bring the mother and the cult. They put their cloaks on them. Jesus sits on them. Why, why would they do this? Well, it comes from 2 Kings, believe it or not, where Jehu is anointed king. And there the people place their garments under his feet. It's a kind of low-rent red carpet treatment. right? They place their garments under his feet. And here the people are publicly acknowledging that this is the messianic king. And Jesus sits on them. right? The clothes, which are now sort of also a makeshift saddle. And you have this unbroken cult on which no one has ever sit, we're told, in another gospel. And it stays calm in the midst of this total chaos. Under the hands of the Messiah. The ruler of nature. And it's a sign of this kingdom where the whole creation, including the animal kingdom, will be reconciled in peace. And you've got this crowd. Now this crowd is mostly Galilean. They're from the north. There were rivalries in Israel between the north and the south. The north... They were uh, not as sophisticated and they were not as religious as the Judean Jerusalem-centered Israelites. And this Galilean crowd spreads their cloaks out on the ground. And others cut these branches down and spread them on the road as well. This is where we get Palm Sunday from. The branches are called palms in John's Gospel. Palms were associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. But here's the problem. This is Passover. It's not Tabernacles. And so this is not a set ritual. This is a spontaneous celebration. The palms were used by Israelites as a national symbol. They were used in connection with prominent military victories. You can find palms on coins or in synagogue decorations in ancient Israel. They're a nationalistic sign. And so the crowd reacts instinctively. Probably at least in part based on Psalm 118, which has a procession with these green branches to the temple. Now, the crowd gets some things right, but it's highly likely that they would have understood this kingship in this militaristic way. This king is coming to deliver us now from Roman oppression. As I said, Jesus shall do that. He shall do it in a more effective and in a more radical way. But it will not be now. Nevertheless, the crowd, it's important to see this, they are right, at least largely right, on the big issue. This is the messianic king. And the shouts of the crowd. Notice now there's a crowd in front of Jesus, possibly coming out from Jerusalem, and there's a crowd behind him that came with him from Galilee. The shouts are also drawn from Psalm 118. Hosanna, which means save or save us now. And at the end, Hosanna in the highest heaven. 
at the beginning of his life, there was an angelic cry, glory to God in the highest. At the end, it's Hosanna in the highest heaven. Notice the crowd says, Hosanna to the son of David. Again, they're correctly seeing that he's the messianic king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yet again, another reference to Psalm 118, another acknowledgement that this is the Messiah. So the crowd has played their role in this little drama. They herald Jesus as the king, and from Jesus, the crowd receives no rebuke. The time of shielding the identity is over. The claims that this one is the Messiah now have to be pressed in Jerusalem. And that brings us to the third, third point here, which is the city and the crowd. Now, there's something very important to see here. In Luke's gospel, the first thing Jesus does as he draws near to the city is he weeps over it. He laments that they have not known the things which make for peace. This is a very strange sort of conquering king. This is a very strange sort of triumphal entry. It's an a-triumphal, triumphal entry. Everyone is celebrating. But Jesus knows that this is the time for tears. This is often missed, I think, in Palm Sunday liturgies. We always have children singing, which is delightful, and we always have palms being waved. The one on the donkey is weeping. The one on the donkey, the enthroned one, is weeping. Because he is not only going to run into Roman power. He's going to run right into this Jewish nationalism and pride. And their anti-Roman zealotry. And their hardened religiosity. And all of those are going to be shattered. Because he's going to Jerusalem to assert his sovereignty over the city and his sovereignty over the temple and his sovereignty through that over the empire. And he knows it's not going to go well. And so in Matthew's account, we're told that when he enters the city, the whole city's shaken up. Same language used of the city when the, the Magi came from the east. Herod and all Jerusalem were shaken up. It's a very strong word. It doesn't mean they were curious. It means the city was electric. And the same thing happens here. In verse 10, the city is shaken and asks, who is this? And in verse 11, it's the crowds. The followers from before his entry into the city who answer the question. Now, at this point, this text gets a little fuzzy, to be quite honest. And I think it's simply because of where we are in the lives of the people in the text. The folks in the city, in Jerusalem, they know Jesus. He's been there before. This would not be his first top trip to Jerusalem. And the question, who is this? It has the force of, well, there's some kind of drama going on. Maybe it has to do with kings and maybe it's even messianic. Yet they don't really grasp who he is or what he's doing. And the answer they get from the crowds, now these people had followed Jesus for 100 plus miles. It's a pretty disappointing answer. They say that he's a prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. 
Of course, that's true. But it's a little anticlimactic, given that they've gone through all of this stuff to declare that he's the son of David, the messianic king of the nations. I mean, for all of their joyful acknowledgement of them, and for all the things they get right, the Galilean crowd is still pretty foggy about who Jesus is. It's almost as if they're concerned more about the ethnic rivalries. In other words, they're saying to the Jerusalem people, this guy, he's Galilean. He's from up where we're from. So, you know, it's sometimes said on Palm Sunday, when preachers preach on this text, that the same crowd which hailed Jesus as king a week later was ready to crucify him. I don't think that's correct. It is at least way too simple uh, a way to look at this text, right? There are at least two crowds here. A crowd in the city and a crowd that came from Galilee. And we can't just map this scene to the scene at Jesus' crucifixion and trial a week from now. Sure, is it possible someone was in the same crowd both times? Yes. But it's not at all clear that the crowds are the same. So there's always been some confusion in the text here. And I want to speak to how I think we can use this confusion. I think that these Palm Sunday texts, especially with the way they end, among other things, they're about clarifying why you and I are following Jesus and just who we think he is. Right? Or more particularly, what kind of king is this? Right? The crowd seems unaware that the red carpet they've laid out for this king ends with him being bound and enthroned on the altar of sacrifice. You know what the crowd skipped in Psalm 118? They skipped this verse. The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. They're very good on kingship. Because kingship means nationalistic liberation from Roman political authority. Not so much on suffering kingship, on suffering servant. Now, I think it's all too easy for us, with the benefit of hindsight, to say that the crowd you know, misunderstood the nature of Jesus' kingship. I think all of us are very much like this crowd like the disciples. We always seem to forget the utter centrality of the truth on display in this procession. Right? That it is the cross which is the chariot, the throne, the royal scepter. And that cross should occupy the central place in our affections. It's the form and the shape of Christian living and Christian discipleship. But nevertheless, it's easily and perpetually displaced. I remember being struck by this. We, we were living in Tennessee. I was pastoring a church there that met on a university campus. And the campus in that whole part of town, this was in 2008, I think, was struck by a F5 tornado, which devastated a good bit of the town we lived in, including the campus where the church I pastored worshipped. And... When I would read in the aftermath, there was even a book compiled. Dozens of reflections and testimonies about what God did or didn't do during and after that storm. I remember thinking, 
And some of the stories were quite moving. Nevertheless, the whole regional theology of God, his sovereignty in and over these disasters, like tornadoes, could be laid out with no, and I mean zero, reference to the cross of Christ. No disordered creation that needs atonement through the blood of this king. Right? Just stories of protection. Right? This, this person was protected and that person was Community assistance, we all pulled together and helped. So here you have a major disaster that points to the disordered created world that needs reconciliation and peace. And you get reams and reams of stories about protection and safety and how we all pulled together, community assistance, like all good stuff. But the cross was not relevant. You didn't need to be a Christian to tell these stories. You could be any monotheistic religious person who believed that the universe was on your side. So we know the way to peace and kingship is through the cross, but we do have a kind of a, you know, a, an attention deficit about it. We forget and we avert our gaze. You know what else we do? We substitute. We're not aware of this, but we substitute other ways, good ways, decent ways, religious ways, moral ways, civic ways, honorable ways of achieving our goals, other ways, any way but this way. But here's the problem. Jesus is is going to Jerusalem to die, and we're following him. And discipleship, as I've said before, is a collision sport. It's a, there's a collision coming in Jerusalem. Jesus can't avoid it, and neither can we. It's a joyful thing to hail Jesus enthroned on a donkey as the coming Prince of Peace, but the joy is hollow. In fact, it's positively false if it's separated from the dread of Good Friday. Again, I remind you, the one on the donkey is in tears. He knows Jerusalem's condition, and he knows, the, he knows what the empire will do to him and to his followers. This drama and that dread of Good Friday are how the king and the kingdom comes. This is not just for Jesus the way to kingship. This is kingship in action. That's what I want you to see in Jesus on the donkey. It's not a prelude. This is his kingship in action. Palm Sunday is Good Friday in advance. The cross for Jesus is not a setback. It's not a defeat. It's not something which has to be rectified by the resurrection or reversed by the resurrection. It's a kingly triumph which is unveiled and made universal by the resurrection. And so... We are followers of this Jesus. And we often find ourselves like the crowd about Jesus, right? Half right, half wrong. And Palm Sunday with its ambiguous crowds gives us an opportunity to seek clarity, to remember the call to discipleship, the form of kingship. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die. You and I, we are called to follow. And that means we follow in sober clarity. We follow this way of of royal humility. 
This means we abandon nationalistic illusions. This means we stand against the claims of all other empires. This means we are braced for collision. This is the message that Jesus speaks to the city. But let me, it's a sober message, but be of good cheer. Because this king, in this manner, in utter humility and weakness, has conquered. And he's going to gather a people. And this people is going to appear in Revelation chapter 7 before the throne of God and the Lamb with palms in their hands. Waving them. Saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. He will speak peace to the nations. And his rule shall be from the river to the ends of the earth. Amen.